0: if you are visiting our church uh, today or uh, have been uh, away for a few weeks, uh, I want to kind of bring you up to speed. Uh, We have been in a conversation called Money Talks. It's been our series for this entire month of April, and it's been our hope to sort of engage in an honest conversation about one of the, I should say, most difficult subjects to talk about, and that is Say so you can't even say it, right? <laughs> Let's try it one more time. Money, money. The thing about money is that everyone has some, everyone uses it, it's part of your everyday life, and almost unbeknownst to us, we have allowed money to define our very own existence. We live in a culture that uh, tries to explain society in terms of dollar bills, We have created identifiers, stratifications. We have actual numbers uh, that say, if you are between this and this income, you're considered, it used to be, you know, the wealthy and the poor. Now it's upper class, upper middle class, upper lower middle class. Do you know all the different designations? And there's actual levels. Those levels are defined either by society and what people say, but they're also defined by the tax bill that you get, amen? Have you ever seen a tax table? You probably have if, you're own, if you do your own taxes. You can look and see how much you're, after all your deductions and all the little you know, tricks we have to reduce. There's a number that says if your tax is between this amount and this amount, your rate is this amount. And the percentage of, of, of what your income is gives you a tax bracket. A tax bracket. And we have stratified ourselves according to tax bracket. In fact, there is now in our common vernacular this expression about the 1%. you guys know what the 1% is? Or the 47%. I mean, there's all kinds of numbers out there that try to define us according to money. Money. And so what we try to do here in the last month is at least open up the door to have an honest conversation in regards to money because it affects all of us. The 1%. I found that one fascinating uh, because <clears throat> It's not as far as you think it is, uh, the 1%. In fact, uh, I was reading uh, uh, some reports on, on tax research, and essentially um, they say if you hit $250,000 combined income, that puts you in the 1%. The 1%. Now, 250000 sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, but normally we have created, we've tried to create a, this association between where we are and where the wealthy are, right? We say, oh, the 1%, those guys are making millions, but statistics say if you make over 250, you're in the 1%. That's very interesting. I talked to uh, 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 everyone at the church last, I don't know, I think it was two weeks ago, about how essentially um, we are in a system of, of taxes in our country, the sort of, funds and, and channels resources around our society to get things going. And that's why the government you know taxes according to these different rates. Um, but how, how uh, that kind of experience identifies who we are. We live in a country that taxes. Uh, we also talked about how um, God has created for us another way of identifying ourselves. The world wants to define us by money, how much you have, what's in your bank account, how much you're making. That's why it's all almost every form that you fill out. What's your household income? You see it in there. But God has tried to define for us who we are in very different terms. Very different terms. In fact, last week at our first service, we talked about uh, Jesus saying there's two ways to understand how the world works. It's either money or love. It's either love or money. Jesus said, you remember, we talked about this last week, you cannot serve two masters. It's either love or money. God presents and provides for us a way to understand who we are, not based on our income, but based on who God says we are. So we've been trying to engage in this conversation because if we don't, we are allowing society's messages to sort of just filter over us, and almost subconsciously we're picking up these definitions. And today, as we close our time together uh, on this subject, at least for now, we're going to talk about debt. Debt. So i got a few numbers for you. And uh, I'm not sure where you are with these numbers, but uh, we'll see how it sticks. Okay. All right. Uh, Does anybody know what the average consumer credit card debt is for uh, an American household for the year 2012, the the year that just passed? Anybody have an idea what the average debt for a um, I'm gonna take a guess. Credit cards, we're talking just credit cards. Average debt for American household. How much? $5,000? 4000 Can I get a six? Can I get a six? Somebody give me six. Somebody give me. S- you say 10? Okay. Uh, according to the research, the average American household for 2012 was $7,093. $7, That's average household credit card debt. We haven't gotten to that other debts yet. Just credit card debt. But the fascinating thing is this is all households put together. <clears throat> but do you know that only about 47% of American households have actual credit card debt? That means for those, there are half of our homes who don't have credit card debt. Maybe that's one of you. You don't, you don't carry credit cards so it's not your thing. What that means is that essentially for households that have credit card debt, the average jumps up For those that have credit card debt, the actual number is closer to $15,000 in credit card debt. Can you believe that? $15,000 and $15,204. That's a lot of money for revolving credit card debt. Uh, But that's not the only kind of debt that people are in, right? What are the other debts? I have some figures here. Let me see. Oh, by the way, just in case you were wondering... Uh, what that totals out to is $848 billion in credit card debt for uh, American families. $848 billion in credit card debt. But that's only the the third largest debt. There are two types of debt that are even bigger than that. Uh, Anybody want to guess? Yes, mortgage. Mortgage debt. Everyone has a mortgage, right? Well, not everyone, but... uh, According to the records, in total, American consumers owe $7.93 trillion in mortgages. Almost $8 trillion in mortgages. That's a lot of money, right? How about you? I mean, don't answer out loud, but just consider. How much is your mortgage? How much are you in debt? (laughs) Nothing. Praise God. That's not everyone, obviously. Some, um, as we'll talk about, have followed some strategies. But we're talking about generalizations right now, and I don't know about where you are. The second largest debt that American consumers credit carry is student loans. Whoa, student loans. Student loans are $1 trillion for American consumers, $1 trillion. Now, obviously, times have changed, right? Uh, I've, uh, I work with high school students, and uh, some of them are getting ready to graduate, move on to college, and we've talked about, you know, going to different schools. And obviously, we believe in, in Christian education. But the fascinating thing about Christian education is that our Adventist universities. The costs have skyrocketed. When I talk to them about how much I pay, they laugh. It wasn't long ago. I say it probably was a long time ago, but the the costs have skyrocketed, even for just uh, uh, state universities. Costs are going up and up and up. Higher than medical care costs. Would you believe that? Higher than medical care costs. We have sort of blamed our economy on the rising cost of medical care. But the price of education, is so we have, that's the second largest consumer debt that American household families have. One trillion dollars in student loans. It's fascinating. But that's nothing compared to our national debt. Anybody know what our national debt is? We're actually closer to seventeen trillion dollars. If you want to freak yourself out, if you want to just, I almost, I almost fell off my chair. Uh, Google national debt clock, and uh, pff, up will pop out a thing called the national debt clock, where it's just it's rolling. It's like when you, uh, you know what I'm talking about. You go get gas. You put in the thing, and then you watch the thing go like that. That's how it's going. But in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's just... The national debt is going up. Uh, It doesn't stop. It keeps going. The interest we're paying is close to, I think, $2 trillion just on interest. It's ridiculous. How do we get here? How How do we come to this position where the households... American households, average American household that has a credit card is carrying $15,000 worth of revolving credit card debt. How did we get here? Well, some will say, you know, it's a function of the economy. Things were going well, and then people lost their jobs, and then, you know, this is what happened. Some will say the problem with credit cards and debt in general is the way the system is set up, and people have fallen into what's called the minimum payment trap. You know what the minimum payment trap is? Okay, I'll explain it to you. Let's say, uh, I, th- I think I do have some figures here. Let me, let me find my, my book. Let's say, yeah, this is from uh, NerdWallet. It's pretty funny. Okay, uh, let's say you, uh, you have a credit card. And by the way, everyone has one or has been offered one. Everyone qualifies. It's the funny thing about credit. Everyone qualifies. You just qualify at a different rate, right? If you've got good credit, as they say, good FICO scores, They'll give you a decent rate. If you don't, they'll say, oh, you're a bigger risk, so it's gonna, the, the percentage rate is going to be higher. So let's say you uh, have a credit card, and for some reason, uh, an emergency came up. This is what people usually say. How did we get here? How did we get in this position? Well, something broke. The car broke down, refrigerator, air conditioning, you name it, broke down, and we had to. We had no choice. We had to spend $1,000. Let's just say $1,000 on credit card debt, okay? So the average rate on uh, somebody not less than stellar credit is like 18% annually, 18% annual rate. And the minimum payment for $1,000 at eighty percent is 2.5% of that, which is, means it's the minimum payment on your credit card statement is 25 bucks. So if you pay the minimum payment, how long do you think it'll take you to pay $1,000 off? Anyone? 13 years. If you make only the minimum payment, it'll take you 13 years to pay off the total interest will be an extra $1,000. You will have paid total $2,115 total. If if your loan is $3,000 and you pay the minimum, minimum, it'll take you 22 years to pay it off. So oftentimes we get into what's called the minimum payment trap. You buy something, and then because you've already expensed that item, you say, well, I don't have enough money, so I'll just pay the only thing that I have to. But the way it's set up, it's for you, the higher the balance, the longer it takes to pay, they make, you, they make it easier for you to carry a balance, and the longer you carry a balance, the more the interest accrues. If you had a, a, a credit card debt of $3,000 and paid the minimum, it, like I said, it'll take you 22 years, and you'll pay 7115 more than double what you, what you borrowed in the first place. On the other hand, if you took out those $1,000 and you paid double the minimum payment, 50 bucks, it'll only take you two years to pay it off. You see the difference between 2 years and 13 years? That's big. But we live in a culture that's trained us to think minimum payment. So some will say this is how we got here, pastor. We we you know, emergencies, things we weren't expecting, and then suddenly we're up to here with debt. Not everyone, but clearly our nation has a problem with debt. Others will say, "Well, we just don't know how to control our spending." Last week, we talked in second service about the differences between uh, personalities in a marriage or in a partnership and how oftentimes in a partnership or a marriage, uh, people will polarize, polarize around the issue of money. For example, two people who like to spend money, if they get married together, one will eventually become the super spender. They'll win. And then the other person, by default, has to become the hoarder because somebody has to hold on to the money while the other person spends. We polarize. And so uh, 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 analysts have said, essentially, uh, what happens in our culture, we, we are driven by this pressure to, to get more because the culture says the more you have, the happier you will be. All the media outlets, all the things that you're exposed to, whether it's on radio, consider this. Even in Christian publications, there's advertising. Did you notice that? Even in the Pacific Union recorder and the Adventist Review, there is advertising. And advertising is trying to get you to... Support a cause, pay for an item, buy a satellite dish. Everything is is geared to you to get something, and the implied notion is that you will not be happy or complete or fulfilled until you have this thing. And so that's the culture that we live in. So some would say this is how we got here, overspending. Overspending. Andy Stanley, a pastor of uh, North Point Church in Atlanta, says one of the biggest uh, differences happened when uh, credit cards replaced the layaway system. You guys know what layaway is? Nobody under like 25 knows what that is. Never heard of it. He says, it used to be that when you wanted something, you went to Sears and you saw a washer and dryer and said, oh, this is what I want. And then you would put a deposit on it and they would hold on to it. And then you'd have to come back and make a payment until you had finally bought it, then you could take it home, right? Remember that? Layaway. Gemco down here in National City used to have a great layaway program, of course. Anyway, <laughs> that's another story. They disappeared. But what replaced the layaway system is the credit card system. So now, when you go in and you see it, they say, hey, you don't have any cash? No money? No problem. We'll give you... Same as cash, interest free financing for the first 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. But after that, if you don't pay it off, all the charges are hit you at once. So, what people do now is you're in the same boat as I am. You look at something and you say, Well, you know, I can have it today. Buy it today, enjoy it tonight. Same day delivery. So, we have bought into a culture that says you can have what you want and you can have it. Now, in fact, get it now and pay it off as you go. In a way, Andy Stanley has said, we have already bought the future. It's like we got a time machine. We went to the future and, we, and we've already got the future, but now we carry the debt for it. How do we get here? He suggests that we have believed the lie that we are entitled to more than what we have been given. Consider that for just a second. And think about, look, this isn't for everyone, but it might apply to you. Consider how you're living, how you're spending, how you're dealing with your credit cards or places that you sign. Do you believe when you're looking at your life and you look at what you have, do you somewhere down deep inside say, you know, this is nice, but I deserve more. My car still runs, but I've been working really hard, and I I should really get a new one. I have a house that's big enough, but after all these years, I think we should upgrade. That's part of our language. That we are somehow entitled to more. It's the American way, it's the American dream. Start from nothing, build your empire, get more. But at what cost? At the cost of a national debt of seventeen trillion, personal debt of, of, of fifteen thousand and credit card debts, never mind mortgage debt. So the average mortgage debt is one hundred and forty eight thousand. That's That's not here in San Diego, In San Diego is triple that. It's much higher in San Diego. Why? Why? Because we have started to believe, slowly but surely. Yes, it used to be. Back in the day, our parents would teach us to save money and hold on to it. Save for a rainy day. A penny saved is a penny. You don't even care for pennies anymore. Who carries pennies? Nobody carries pennies. You see one on the side of the road? Eh. Not worth your time, to bend over and pick it up. Besides, somebody may have glued it there, and then you're going to look silly when you try to pick it up. We live in a culture that says, no, you're entitled. Get what you want and get it now. And put all these things together, and we have created a culture of debt. Yes, out there in society, out there in the world, but even right here amongst us. We have fallen Look, I'm in the same boat with you, all right? I'm in the same boat with you. I have car loans. I have a mortgage. Do you remember the day you got your first mortgage and they sat you down and then it was like page after page after page? And then they make that joke, oh, you're signing your life away. Ha, ha, ha. It's not so funny, is it? Page after page. I remember we were, I was sweating that the first mortgage that I signed. Because we've been told essentially that's what you do. This is how you live in the U.S. You, this is the way it works. That debt is part of living here. That debt is good. In fact, they want you and encourage you to have a good debt score, a good FICO score, right? Do you know what your score is, by the way? They want you to have a good debt score, which is uh, a FICO score is an expression of how much you owe, what kind of debt you owe, and how long you've had it. There's another way of saying, I love debt. And the more you love debt, the more they'll let you get debt. The higher your score the more credit they'll give you, right? That's the kind of culture that you and I live in. Now, if you've been impervious and you are like a solid rock, to praise God, you need to teach somebody else right around you. Maybe your kids. Maybe your neighbor. But if not, God is going to challenge you today to rethink how you're doing what you're doing. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7 for just a moment. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew right in front of you. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. I'm sure you've heard this before, but we're going to look at it for just a second. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7, and it says this. The rich rule over the poor, amen, and the borrower is the servant to the lender. The borrower is the servant to the lender. What the Bible says about debt is that when you take on debt, when, we ta- when I take on debt, I become a slave to the person that lent me that. Now, who, who wants to be a slave? Who thinks of themselves as a servant? Nobody. Nobody wants to do that. But the Bible suggests that when we become indebted to someone, we become their slave. That's kind of how it works. If you, take a, if you step back from your own life and you just examine yourself, you'll find this to be true. Oftentimes, I talk to people who say, I don't want to go to work. I hate my job. And what are you doing? Because I have a mortgage to pay. I don't want to do this. I don't, why are you doing it? Because car payments come around every month. Well, do you have to have that car? Well, yeah, I kind of do because it defines me. No one says that out loud, but that's the, that's the kind of mentality that you have. Do you really have to have that nice a car? For you to feel good about yourself? These are honest questions. These are real questions. If we're going to have an open conversation about money, you've got to have this conversation with yourself and with your significant other. Do you, do we have to spend at the rate that we spend in order to be fulfilled? Because the rate that we're spending is making us slaves to the lender. It's true, right? And when the lender, when you don't pay the lender, they come after your stuff. Do you know that there's like I don't know how many TV shows right now about repossession. Like That's like the hottest thing on television. All kinds of shows about repossession. How a lender can come in and you didn't make your payments, they take it back. Reality show. Repossession. Because they own and they own you. Take your house. Foreclosure. Take your car. Bible says... The borrower is the servant to lend. Do you know that the Bible teaches us that God did not want us to be a nation of borrowers? God, in fact, wanted us, wanted to bless his children so that we would lend to the nations instead of the other way around. But we, even those of us in church, have kind of fallen prey to this idea that debt is good, that debt is part of life. And along with that, we have fallen prey to the minimum payment trap, to the upgrade or die mentality. You have to upgrade to the debt is good, and I'm entitled to more. But the Bible suggests that's not the case. See, what God is saying and has been saying through this entire month as we're talking about is number one, everything belongs to God, amen? The cattle on a thousand hills belong to God. Everything belongs to God. Number two, God is the one who wants to bless you. But you and I chase after our own blessings rather than receiving the blessings from God. It's almost as if God gives you something and we say, you know, I like what you gave me. That's not good enough for me. I deserve better. God says the thing that gives you value is not how much you have or how much you can earn. The thing that gives you value is that I love you, that your identity should be in that, that I love you, that I care for you, that I would pay a price for you, that I did pay a price for you. God challenges us to understand our self-worth and identity in Him rather than in the things that we have. That's why the Bible says, don't stir up for yourself treasures on earth, but in heaven. Don't put your value, your self-worth, in the things here that can depreciate the second you drive them off the lot. Don't put your self-worth in the things that are temporary, but put your worth in God, who never changes whose opinion of you is not swayed by circumstance, by your paycheck, by your career. Put your trust, God says, in me, and I will always provide for you. So do not worry, He says therefore, what you are to eat or drink, but seek the kingdom of God. And all of the, you've heard that before, right? Seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. So I'm gonna give you a quick four steps. This is from Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey is a, it's a Christian financial planner who's put a fantastic program out there. If you want to check it out, DaveRamsey.com. Uh, he has a thing called Financial Peace University where he uh, travels from church to church to try to teach people, instruct them on good financial management. And the one thing he says is you've got to get out of debt. You've got to get out of debt. You have to get out of debt. In fact, he says, according to Dave Ramsey, 75% of the wealthiest people said that the most important key to winning with money is to get out of debt and stay out of debt. You don't become wealthy by getting into debt. So I'm going to give you some. This is from Dave Ramsey. Four, four steps to getting out of debt. Number one, quit borrowing money. It's pretty simple, right? Quit borrowing money. Quit borrowing money. He says, people people... Use credit card debt for emergencies, but you've got to plan for emergencies. So his his step number one is build for yourself a savings of at least thousand dollars for emergencies. And you're saying, well, pastor, I'm making minimum payments. Where do I save money? You can, you can. But you got to look at the little things. You got to look at the little things. An extra snack here, an extra nails here. You know, whatever it is, the little things. And you're you can put together. In fact, he suggests, and I would agree. That if you went home, look in your garage, you could probably sell a lot of stuff in there that you're not using and come up with a thousand bucks. Quit borrowing money. Number two, he says, prayer really works. If you're in danger, if you're in doubt, don't try to save yourself. Ask God, He will bless you. Prayer really works. Number three, uh, he said, sell something. Get rid of your stuff. Get rid of your stuff. And number four, um, take a part-time job. <laughs> he suggested if, if you got yourself into debt, he says, well, you might have to work a little harder to get yourself out of debt. So it, it, it won't last forever, but you got to get out of debt. So take a part-time job, do extra, put in a few extra hours, and start paying off your debt. He has this principle called the debt snowball, which means um, put your, line up all your debts if you have credit cards or car payments or whatever. Or line up all your debts. Uh, don't worry about percentage rate just now. Look at the smallest one you have. If You've got a $200 Macy's card or whatever. Look at the smallest one and then sc- cr- cr- scratch and claw whatever you've got to do to pay off that small one. Once you've paid that off, take the money that you were using for minimum payments and apply to the next one. And work on that one until you pay that one off from the smallest to the largest. He says it becomes like a debt snowball and you start paying it off. But what we normally do is when we pay off something, we think, oh, great, now that's free money I can use to go do something else. So let me repeat number one. Quit borrowing money. (laughs) Plan for emergencies. Quit borrowing money. And the simplest, most important thing that you can do is learn that your Father has everything already. Your Father in Heaven wants to bless you. He's given us an even extra special tool called generosity. That's what we've talked about here. Learning to live within our means, trusting God when we give our tithes and offerings, and allowing God to bless us. Because it's God who defines your true worth, not how much money you have. So let's get out of debt. Let's start being more generous with our money and the things that really do matter. Let's build our treasure in heaven, not here.